Okay. Okay. Good. Okay, so welcome all to the uh, next meeting of the Aristotelian Society. Uh, it gives me enormous pleasure to welcome Lisa Shapiro from Simon Fraser University, who will be talking to us about assuming epistemic authority or becoming a thinking thing. Thank you. Uh, thanks very much, and thanks for having me. Um, uh, so here's a brief outline of the talk, um, uh, which I guess some of you have uh, downloaded. Um, but I wanted to begin with um, a little bit of historical context, because it is a history of philosophy paper, and also some methodological issues for contemporary history of philosophy that I'm trying to address in the paper. So first, a little tidbit of historical context. Um, one, we're, um, we're, those of us working in the history of early modern philosophy especially um, are familiar with uh, um, efforts to contextualize uh, metaphysics and especially the metaphysics of body um, within uh, early, the development of early modern science and natural philosophy. But there's been less work done on um, the reception of Descartes' account of mind as a thinking thing and um, there's really not much uh, context about how Descartes' views was view, that famous view for us that uh, I'm nothing but a thinking thing, was received in his own period. And so um, part of what this paper is doing is trying to begin that process of contextualizing Descartes' philosophy of mind. Um, a bit of pre-Descartes history, um, there's something really interesting that happens, I think, as a result of the Protestant Reformation, both in Europe and in England. There's a, a proliferation of writings, uh, of translations of classical texts um, by men and by women. And those translations seem um, are important, I think, uh, pieces of evidence because they're preceded with substantive prefaces. So I think my gut feeling is these early modern translators um, didn't see translation as a kind of rote exercise, but rather as an interpretive exercise. And part of the point of those prefaces in the translation was for the translators to put forward their own interpretation and to, a sense, in a sense, own the text and to make it their own to, um, and thereby to assert their authority over that text. And I think part of that context is what Descartes is, um, you know, part of and can help us understand uh, a bit about where this idea that I'm a thinking thing comes from. But that's all I want to say about that. On the flip side, within contemporary um, uh, history of philosophy. One of the things that I'm uh, deeply invested in is um, uh, revitalizing uh, uh, the works of women philosophers of the early modern period. And that poses a challenge as well because uh, we have a quite entrenched uh, philosophical canon. And um, there are different ways of bringing uh, women into that canon or into the way in which we teach history of philosophy, one of which is to pick uh, um, one or two or three women philosophers and really develop inter substantive interpretations of those texts, the texts that they wrote on, and in effect um, 
bring those women into the philosophical canon. And there are certainly um, texts that are well worth uh, approaching in that way. Um, people are working on Margaret Cavendish, on Mary Estelle, among others. Um, uh, but another way of thinking about this project of canon revision is to um, tell a different story, to think about the kind of narrative uh, that could have women be a part of the substantive story. And that's really the approach I'm taking in this paper. So I'm not really going into a lot of detail about any of the figures, um, but I'm trying to tell a kind of um, intellectual historical narrative that can help frame philosophical questions in a slightly different way that makes sense then to probe new and different figures. So um, that's by way of introduction, uh, background I should say. Let me um, now um, get started with reading the paper. Um, Philosophical arguments for women's education in the latter half of the 17th century aim to confront the substantive epistemic injustice of the devaluation of women's capacity for reasoning by deploying the Cartesian idea that human beings are essentially thinking things. These arguments take the core of thinking to involve not simply being reflexively aware of one's own ideas, but also being able to give reasons and defend one's beliefs against objections. That is, they take being a thinking thing to involve what I'm going to call holding epistemic authority. In confronting the epistemic injustice facing women, they, unlike Descartes, recognize that being thinking things holding epistemic authority is not just up to each of us. Rather, it depends upon conditions that all too often go unsatisfied when women or girls are not taken to be equal to men or boys. These arguments for women's education aim at realizing the natural equality of men and women and face head on the practical challenge of enabling those who, through prejudice, have been deprived of authority to assume that epistemic authority of their own. That they ask, how does one become a thinking thing? My discussion begins with Descartes to show both that it makes sense to take holding epistemic authority to be the core of being a thinking thing, and how even Descartes implicitly recognizes that thinking, properly speaking, depends on certain conditions achieving. François Poulain de la Barre, Françoise Daubigny, Madame de Maintenon, and Gabrielle Souchon, in addressing the unequal status of women, all accept this Cartesian account of a thinking thing. Yet they also recognize that the social order precludes women and girls meeting the conditions for holding epistemic authority. They lack experience, social freedom, and self-confidence. In addressing these inequities, they develop the individualist Cartesian conception of thought into one that is essentially dialogic and is cultivated through one's upbringing and dependent on a political order. So I'm framing these, uh, this historical discussion in terms of epistemic injustice and epistemic authority to signal that I think the reception of Descartes' account of mind can be brought to bear on contemporary discussion, but uh, constraints of time and um, in all sorts of time won't permit me to develop that suggestion in any detail. So first, I want to um, just uh, um, talk a bit about Descartes, because he's a familiar figure, hopefully. Um, and that's a passage I'm going to appeal to um, shortly. 
Descartes' conception of a thinking thing, as it is presented in the meditations, has three distinct elements. The subjectivity proper to thinking, a representational structure governed by reasons, and the connection between the representational structure and subjectivity, which combine to vest a thinker with epistemic authority. The cogito in the second meditation distills the subjectivity proper to thinking most clearly. There, the meditator, in the grip of a radical doubt, considers two contrary scenarios. In the first, at least some of his thoughts are veridical. In the second, none are. In each of these cases, one thing must still be true. I am, I exist, is necessarily true whenever it's put forward by me or conceived in my mind. The meditator then goes on to clarify just what this I is by considering not simply the logic of the situation, but his own thoughts. And he concludes the following. Um, that passage is probably one of the most famous from the meditations. I'm not going to um, read it in its entirety, but I want to highlight um, the language, the epistemic language that's um, in uh, in the passage, I am, I exist, that is certain, but for how long? Um, uh, for as long as I'm thinking. At present, I'm not admitting anything except what's necessarily true. I am then, in a strict sense, only a thing that thinks. Um, but for all that, I am a thing which is real and which truly exists, but what kind of thing? As I have just said, a thinking thing. Rather than defining thinking, the meditator demonstrates both to himself and to us what thinking consists in, his own, our own, reflexive awareness. In that demonstration, the meditator also asserts his own epistemic authority, citing both his certainty and the basis for that certainty, his access to what is real and true. However, given the background of radical doubt against which these claims are made, his claim to access the real and the true, and so to be warranted in his certainty, seems to come out of nowhere. Descartes' account of the representationality of thought begins to address this issue. A consideration of a piece of wax shows that our ideas are of things in virtue of judgment-like constructions. The third meditation aligns the representational nature of thought with its being governed by reasons through the causal argument for God's existence. Part of properly constructing an idea involves grasping its reasons, and the veracity of our thoughts depends on the quality of the construction, whether it is clear and distinct or confused and obscure, and so the set of reasons that help structure them. Descartes' definition of clear and distinct perception in Principles 1, Article 45, highlights the interconnection between being reason-governed and the subjectivity proper to thought. There, he defines clear as present and accessible to the attentive mind, capturing the subjectivity or experience of thinking. His definition of distinct as so sharply separated from all other perceptions that it contains within itself only what is clear captures the logical dimension of thought. Thinking well requires properly distinguishing thoughts from and relating them to one another. Yet this articulation of the order of reasons requires clarity of thought, that is, subjectivity. 
Thus, what it is to be a thinking thing is to be reflexively aware of things in a way that both recognizes the sources of epistemic authority and itself holds epistemic authority in virtue of that recognition. Further, the meditative pretense of the work suggests that this awareness and even reason itself comes from within. Thinking is a matter for individuals who then enter into discussions with other individuals. The self-generation of epistemic authority echoes the discourse on method, where in part two, Descartes presents himself as, quote, reforming my own thoughts and constructing upon them a foundation which is all my own. However, despite Descartes' pretensions in the discourse, um, that work recognizes that this assumption of authority is not entirely sui generis. While in part one he presents his formal education if, as if a waste of time, Descartes acknowledges that it does have value insofar as it expanded his experience, allowing him to engage in conversation with the most distinguished men of past ages, rehearsed though that conversation might be, and exposing him to mathematics, theology, and philosophy, as do his experience, experiences in the great book of the world after his, his, his schooling. Only with these experiences under his belt does Descartes decide to retreat alone into a stove-heated room, quote, where I was completely free to converse with myself about my own thoughts, and from which he emerges with the four rules articulating his method of reasoning in part two, a set of maxims for action in part three, and with the realization, je pense donc je suis, um, and that um, he was a substance whose whole essence or nature is simply to think in part four. So in the, in the discourse, Descartes recognizes that establishing a method of reasoning requires having had a range of experiences that involve engaging with others, whether through their writings or meetings in the course of life. This makes sense. Engaging with others exposes us to the perspectives of others and informs our judgments by moving us to situate ourselves within that array of diverse perceptions. But it need not um, uh, threaten the individualism of the Cartesian conception of thought. The discourse also implicitly highlights at least two other conditions for assuming epistemic authority. First, Descartes presents himself as having immense social freedom. He can leave school and enter the world, visiting courts and armies, moving from region to region, and even country to country. Secondly, and more implicitly, Descartes exhibits an extraordinary self-confidence, pushing aside what he has been taught, setting out on his own, and devising a set of rules to structure his thoughts. <coughs> This self-confidence is reflected in the moral maxims of part three, to be firm and decisive in action, assured that we have judged the best we can, and to maintain mastery of our own thoughts. This mantle of freedom and confidence allows epistemic authority to appear to come naturally to him. I want now to move to consider François Poulain de la Barre. Um, the slide gives you a bit of uh, background into uh, his life and the works he wrote, since no doubt many of you haven't, aren't familiar with him. Um, Poulain de la Barre recognizes that epistemic authority, while essential to human nature as a thinking thing, does not come naturally. In On the Equality of the Two Sexes in 1673, he leverages the basic tenets of 
Cartesian skeptical method to undermine the prejudice that women are inferior to men both in their capacities and their merit, and they deserve the dependent status they currently occupy by demonstrating that observed differences between men and women might be explained other than by their having different natures. Towards the end of the essay, he suggests that observed differences between men's and women's intellectual capacities can be explained by deficiencies in women's education. Insofar as they deprive women of the opportunity to become thinking things, he effectively takes those deficiencies to constitute an epistemic injustice. To address this injustice and to further undermine the prejudice against women, Poulain advocates for women's education, providing a model in his On the Education of the Ladies the next year, 1674. And the five conversations comprising that work both exemplify and defend his educational program, um, which is they demonstrate how someone can become a thinking thing. In the first conversation, which serves to introduce the four distinct characters, Poulain makes clear that his program aims to satisfy the three conditions for realizing one's nature as a thinking thing in play in Descartes' discourse. First, insofar as the discussants are a mix of men and women at different stages of their education and from different backgrounds, in conversing with one another, they broaden one another's experience. Stasimachus, the alter ego of Poulain, is positioned as a master, having experienced more of the world and having already harvested the fruits of a proper education. Sophie, a young gentlewoman, has started her education, gone through some initial stages, but is still a novice. Eulalie is of a lower social class and has lived an unsheltered life, having escaped from a family rife with domestic and sexual abuse. With no, <coughs> with no genuine upbringing, she's barely molded by custom and has, no formal, has had no formal education. Lastly, Tamander, with a young gentleman, has received some formal education from which he has received some opinions that he can repeat but not justify, including some regarding the possibility or lack thereof of educating women. Second, through the conversation, they demonstrate having met a minimum threshold of freedom in putting forward their own differing points of view and in raising objections to one another's views. Yulali, in particular, who was formerly in a coercive environment, is at liberty to assert her point of view and pursue her own interests in the discussion. Third, each character presents a different affective profile and, in particular, a different level of self-confidence. Again, Yulali is most instructive. Initially, she's too timid to speak, but she quickly develops confidence enough both to be able to share her personal history and to inject herself into the conversation by asking pointed, sharp questions about what has been discussed. With the characters introduced, the conditions sufficiently satisfied, the work of ed education begins. The first lesson involves some basic ground clearing. First, Poulin signals self-knowledge as the core of education through the set of questions uh, Stasimachus asks Eulalie. Whether you know what you are and what is the state of your soul, whether you know what you are doing when you ask about acquiring knowledge, and whether you think you're ready for the greatest resolution a person can make. Through self-knowledge, we can achieve the central goal of an education as establishing as far as possible a sovereign reason that will enable them to judge all things sensibly and without prejudice through which they are slaves to opinion and custom. 
Unsurprisingly, Yulali does not yet have answers to these three questions. But rather than provide answers, Poulain articulates a basic assumption which facilitates overcoming the deference to the opinions of others that compromise prospects for self-knowledge. One is naturally, this is the basic assumption behind what follows, one is naturally the equal of the other and both are equally prone to error. Assuming this epistemic equality can both loosen the grip of prejudices and open a, open a space for assuming epistemic authority. If each person is equally fallible, then each of us has no prior basis for trusting what others have told us over our own judgment. Rather, we need to understand the reasons both for our own beliefs and those of others. In fact, we ought to prefer our own reasons, relying on the testimony of another only because of the truth he has imparted to us not on our belief in his expertise. And that's a quote from Poulain. And discounting public opinion if we cannot retrieve the reasons that might once have grounded it. Assuming epistemic equality thus entails a resolution to rely on one's own judgment and an associated obligation to examine our own beliefs and seek and evaluate the reasons for them. That is, it entails we recognize ourselves as holding epistemic authority over our own beliefs. Once this ground has been cleared for Poulain, as for Descartes, doubt serves as a vehicle through which to develop self-knowledge in his interlocutors, and so to address the framing questions posed at the outset. First, the act of doubting itself instills a sense of self by highlighting that which escapes doubt. Once a student has a sense of self, doubting is the impetus to reason giving. Raising objections provides the occasion to organize thoughts, to relate them to one another, and to evidence, <clears throat> and to notice consistency and contradiction, as well as other rational relations. As Eulalie notes, um, when I raised objections, I had given no thought to the pattern and the interplay between the various things we know, nor to the nature or the diversity of our doubts. Nor had I thought that doubt or the impartiality or that nor had I thought that doubt or that impartiality encourages us to find clear reasons for what otherwise we know only confusedly. That is indeed all I claim, replied Stasimachus. Once a student is practiced in offering reasons, attention can turn to substantive matters, first evaluating local customs by comparing those practices to those of others and considering which actions best serve our ends. With the guides to practical matters in place, the questions regarding the nature and the variety of the principles of which we are constituted, with which the discussion started, can be addressed. What are mind and body? What are their distinguishing and common features? Whether they really make a whole or are really distinct? How they are joined together? And what are the laws, effects, and results of that union? Poulain focuses on the nature of the human body in particular, its construction, and how the motions of the body affect our thought. As I have noted, the character of Eulalie brings out the importance of experience and self-confidence to establishing this sovereign reason. However, her character also highlights that being able to reason does not just so happen. Becoming a thinking thing and assuming epistemic authority is a social undertaking. 
The work consists of conversations because we are meant to see that it is through discussion itself that the characters, and especially Yulali, acquire experience and develop confidence. But it's also through conversation that the characters learn to reason. Further, the flow of conversation helps in articulating implications and broadening the range of the connection between thoughts. If doubt is the vehicle through which we recognize our own existence in nature, conversation provides the scaffolding for emerging from that doubt, giving our thoughts structure and direction. In this way, for Poulin, recognizing that one's a thinking thing, having the reflective awareness proper to thinking, grasping the reasons which set the standards of epistemic authority and taking oneself as an epi epistemic authority is an essentially social process, even while it is up to each of us to realize our nature as thinking things. The style of the work in which he outlines his positive view of education also enacts that view. As we read the work, we witness an education in progress. But as readers, we are more than mere witnesses. We can enter into the conversation ourselves, developing interpretations of what Poulain takes to constitute an education and raising objections to his views. Through this enactment of education, we also see the shortcomings of Poulain's view. Though Poulain takes an assumption of epistemic equality to be integral to becoming a thinking thing, in the discussion itself, Stasimachus is prima inter pares. He is clearly the master from whom others are to learn and to pay due deference. He often lectures, asks loaded questions, seeks praise, and guides the discussion along a set course. Though his pretension is to teach his students to think for, him, for themselves, the fundamental assumptions, the metaphysics, that self-knowledge is the foundation of all knowledge, the principle of epistemic equality, are never closely examined. It may well be that Stasimachus is presented in this way to invite us as readers to apply the principles that are being articulated to the master himself rather than simply following his authority blindly and thereby to articulate epistemic standards for ourselves and assert our own epistemic authority. Alternatively, it may well be that Poulin self-consciously recognizes that he is writing at the beginning of a transition period, one in which upbringing is at odds with proper educational principles. Until children are brought up cultivating their own capacity as thinkers, a benevolent master is required to affect a proper education and to liberate those enslaved by prejudice. Either of these readings is consistent with the basic lesson, becoming a thinking thing is a social effort premised on the assumption of epistemic equality. However, this character of Sosimachus also raises the question of how egalitarian a proper education can really be if we're allowed to if we are to allow for expertise, including expertise in what is required for thinking itself. And that brings me to my next figure, François Daubigné Marquise de Maintenon. Um, she can be understood as taking up this question. For Poulain, education gets a foothold through the failings of the way in which children are raised, and so can only be undertaken at a certain level of maturity. Madame de Maintenon's central educational project, the Royal Institute of Saint-Louis at Saint-Cyr, aimed to reform the very ways in which children, and in particular girls, were brought up to ensure they grew into thinking rational agents. Founded in 1686, Saint-Cyr was an innovative school for girls in a number of ways. 
First, it aimed to educate girls from impoverished aristocratic families, for instance, the daughters of military officers, thus making education accessible to those who could not af afford a private tutor. Second, the curriculum at Saint-Cyr not only included arts such as needlepoint, in which women in the period were typically instructed, but also emphasized religion, reading, writing, arithmetic, music, and the storytelling arts of literature and theater. The curriculum was designed progressively, taking students through different stages of their development from children into adults and divided into the following elements, each founded on dialogic interactions. Instruction, or talks given directly to the students in dialogue form. Conversation, dialogues in the form of short plays to be performed by students. And proverbs, skits acting out a popular saying. In addition, the, the curriculum intentionally incorporated entertaining activities for Madame de Maintenon recognized that time spent learning needed to be offset by lighter fare. <coughs> Just as much attention was paid to the method of instruction, teachers were professionalized and given a community building mission achieved by living together and by thinking of the students as part of their community. Instruction was always focused on reason giving. Teachers were to explain the reasons for the rules and for the practices and decisions. Sounds completely exhausting. Um, <coughs> moreover, classroom instruction was designed so that students themselves played an active role with student leaders conducting discussion sessions with, within their age group and older students mentoring younger students. Maintenon's design of her educational community makes clear that she, like Poulain, takes becoming a, th a thinking thing to be an essentially social process. The design also addresses the challenges Poulain's model faced of enacting the epistemic equality it assumed. For the structure of the program itself recognizes that different activities will be appropriate at different stages of development, while self-conscious consciously inculcating in all participants a motivation to work collectively towards the end they are all share, that is, becoming thinking things. For Maintenon, the assumption of equality is instilled through an upbringing that cultivates habits of mutual respect rather than recognized theoretically after inequalities have already been instituted through custom. Insofar as the principal mechanisms of instruction were dialogues, the educational model developed the habits of reasoning while teaching students to reason for themselves. In hearing dialogues, students were given examples of how to raise and answer objections, that is to seek and give reasons. In reading scripted dialogues, student students would effectively practice giving reasons. And then ultimately in performing the dialogue, students would need to have an interpretation worked out effectively making the reasons their own. Consider a conversation aptly titled on education at Saint-Cyr and how it works both argumentatively and rhetorically to both present reasons and develop the ability to reason. The short dialogue is structured as a discussion among six girls about the very dialogues that form the core of their instruction. Two of the girls begin by noting how, how both entertaining and useful the dialogues are and they're immediately met with an objection that nothing that is truly educational could also be pleasant, raised by another girl, Olympiad. <coughs> this objection raises the general question of what occasions pleasure, and in addressing that question, one of the characters admits to rethinking her position on the dialogues. 
This reconsideration of one's belief in light of listening to another's point of view effectively demonstrates that which another character remarks shortly after, that through the dialogues, our mind is enlightened on certain things that we, we might never have known. At the very least, it would have required us to have had some lengthy experience. Another character notes that through the dialogues, our heart is formed in all kinds of virtue. Despite an emerging consensus among her peers, Olympiad persists, insisting that playing children's games is more fun than learning through dialogues. And in the face of resistance to her point of view, she notes that the education at Saint-Cyr isn't exempt from criticism. The dialogue ends with a report of criticisms from outside the school and the ironic retort, the reason they cultivate in us will help us endure to endure life with those who lack reason. The dialogue displays a genuine conversation between friends, that is, individuals with equal status who have concerns for one another's good. Unlike in Poulain's conversations and in other philosophical dialogues, it's difficult to identify a single character um, with the author and so as the authority to be followed. There's no stasimachus in these dialogues. Um, this form of friendship does not require agreement for the girls maintain their friendship while both criticizing the positions of others and presenting a view and defending it against criticism. In presenting their arguments, they find pleasure through laughter, through sharing in one another's happiness, and this pleasure promotes the very goals of their education, the pursuit of knowledge and the development of virtue. Some of the pleasures are those of surprise, and surprise focuses attention and prompts explanations, which in turn brings about a greater, more durable pleasure, and certainly more so than the pleasures of children's games with which they could distract themselves. The discussion within the dialogue itself displays what reasoning involves. In asserting their own views and defending it against objection, the girls develop their sense of self and assert their epistemic authority. Through the content of those different and differing perspectives, they learn to draw distinctions, for instance, of the different senses of pleasure, and the logic relating those different ideas. The continued engagement with others also cultivates virtue by encouraging attitudes of respect for others with whom they might differ. And finally, it's important that within the educational model, there is nothing that is immune from criticism, not even the model itself thereby showing that the practice of reason giving is not one of appealing to and affirming external authority, but rather of explaining how one's practices serve one's chosen ends and of articulating and justifying those ends themselves. Maintenant's program leverages human passions in service to education. Surprise is, is generated to capture student attention from new perspectives. Pleasure is used to su sustain that attention. The love proper to friendship is encouraged through dialogue, and that love is developed into respect. Absent from the program are negative passions, whether fear of doing poorly or of punishment or hatred of others. The explicit aim of the curriculum design is to cultivate those emotional dispositions conducive to virtue in its students. But in doing so, the curriculum also builds student confidence, allowing them the freedom to assume epistemic authority, exercising their reason, raising objections, answering them, and entering into reason-giving discussions with those who both agree and disagree with them. Whereas Poulain sees education as an antidote to upbringing in mature thinkers, Maintenant wants to design upbringing to develop children into thinking things. In this way, Maintenant may be more, um, 
Maintenon's may be a more radical rejection of individualism than Poulin's, for she, she does not simply recognize the social conditions of becoming a thinking thing. Though she ultimately appeals to faith to ground reasoning, Maintenon models reasoning as a kind of habit, albeit a special kind of habit, cultivated through social practices. For this reason, it's not clear that the program of enacting dialogues can achieve its end. Consider two distinct ways in which the dialogues might have been performed. In the first, the roles are like costumes, with personae put on and taken off just as quickly. There's little guarantee that stu students learn what the dialogue exemplifies, since students simply mouth their lines. In the second, after the dialogues have been acted out, teachers and students discuss them fully, articulating the reasons expressed by one's character and discussing those reasons, raising and addressing additional objections. The second way of deploying the dialogues would stand more of a chance to develop young thinkers. The act of taking up a role and then reflecting upon itself mirrors what it is to be a thinking thing from a reflexive awareness to the articulation of reasons to the assertion of one's own reasons. And so it creates a real opportunity for the young actor um, to experience the subjectiv subjectivity proper to thinking and the epistemic authority that follows from it. However, even the second way faces challenges. Though the arguments in the dialogues could well be disputed in discussion, the school itself is premised on a set of social and political assumptions which affirm the habituation and training of students and so ground the very operation of the institution. Madame de Maintenon was the consort and then wife of Louis XIV, and as much as the, her establishment of Saint-Cyr served to open up opportunities for young women, it also served a political end. The upbringing afforded the students invested. Um, uh, the upbringing afforded the students invested them with a sense of belonging to a particular social class and of being part of a new political order, and they were thereby well positioned to contribute to establishing and sustaining this order, even though their schooling exercised their capacity for reason giving and developed their sense of epistemic authority. There was nothing in that education that demanded that they turn their reflection on the social structures that supported that training. This last point brings me to my last figure, Gabrielle Souchon. In her treatise on ethics and politics, divided into three parts, freedom, knowledge, and authority, Souchon argues forcefully that if women are deprived of freedom, knowledge, and authority, that is constrained ignorant and subjugated, it is not because they naturally lack these qualities, but rather because of custom. In her subsequent work on the celibate life freely chosen, she goes a step further and argues that existing institutional practices interfere with the fundamental human freedom of self-determination. The title of that second work refers to celibacy, which Souchon defines as a condition without commitments. As she fleshes out this definition, it becomes clear that the commitments she has in mind are features of a profession. While it's hard to know what she intends by profession, her two central examples are religious vocation and marriage. Given that she defines a commitment as a strict obligation to remain in the same condition, permanently exercising certain duties and ways of living from which one can never evade, it makes sense to think of a profession as having an institutionalized character, 
that is, is being constituted by a set of prescriptive policies, codes of conduct, and law-like rules for those who practice that profession to follow and which do not change. So insofar as one chooses to enter a profession, the prescriptions of the institution entail that there are no further choices to be made. One commits to it. In developing her notion of celibacy, Souchon aims to conceive of a way of life that is resolute but does not have this institutional character. She calls it a neutral life, and the followers of that life are neutralists. In leading a celibate life or a neutral life, one chooses an end for oneself and then makes further choices in order to continue to strive to achieve that end. There are no set rules, no prescriptive codes of conduct, simply a resolve to continue to live in the way that one judges to be the best. This distinction between a celibate life and a profession can help address help in addressing part of the concern about whether the institution of Saint-Cyre simply in virtue of being an institution undermined its own efforts um, to help girls become full-fledged thinking things. Institutions like convents and marriage contracts do not simply generate particular sets of obligatory actions. They also fail to contain provisions for reconsidering and revising those obligations, at least they didn't in the 17th century. This inbuilt conservatism solidifies them as institutions. Souchon herself seems pessimistic that any social institution could preserve human freedom. However, her critique and her model of the celibate life suggests the possibility of an institution that contains within it provisions for its own revision by ensuring that those who choose to participate in it retain the degree of autonomy required to review and reform the institutional practices themselves, that is, to understand the reasons for the practices and to assure that they are attuned to the aim of the institution. While Souchon argues forcefully for women's education in the treatise on ethics and politics, she does not herself, to my knowledge, discuss the form that education should take. She does, however, situate learning, and in particular reading, at the center of the celibate life. For her, the joy of reading consists largely in the peace of having that time to think for oneself, and she takes one-on-one -on -one tutoring to, as the default form of education. This is consistent with her skepticism about institutions more generally. Nonetheless, one might take the form of the school at, at Saint-Cyr insofar as it actively encouraged the participation of both teachers and students, encouraged the raising of, the, of objections, and as we have seen, a reflection on the aims and methods of the school itself, to provide a model for an institution um, with freedom at the core, um, sorry, to, to provide a model uh, for an institution structured to enable and even encourage the freedom at the core of thinking and epistemic authority, but also at the core of human nature on this line of thinking. For Descartes, being a thinking thing involves essentially not only being reflexively aware of one's own thoughts, but also grasping the reasons for them. And in virtue of being able to give and respond to reasons for her thoughts, a thinker holds epistemic authority. By Descartes' lights, epistemic authority comes easily, even if he might acknowledge that it depends on our being able to exercise freedom sufficient to have a, ha, have a range of experiences and the self-confidence to assert one's own opinions. 
Poulain de la Barre recognizes that holding epistemic authority also depends on recognizing one another as epistemic equals. This assumption of epistemic equality enables the interpersonal exchange of reasons or conversations, querying the claims of others, asserting one's own views, supporting them with reasons and defending them against objections, and also to revise one's views in light of that exchange. He also recognizes that all too often, especially in the case of women, through prejudice we deny the equality of others and so do them an injustice. But even if we do recognize others as epistemic equals, achieving that equality in practice is challenging. After all, some hold more knowledge than others, and it can be challenging to restrain the exercise of mastery so that others can learn for themselves, that is, assume their own epistemic authority. Madame de Maintenon's educational program aims to build a genuine community of epistemic equals and to cultivate a practice of assuming epistemic authority in students from an early age through a curriculum focused on dialogic interactions. But she relies on tools of habituation that seem antithetical to that free exercise of judgment at the core of thinking. Moreover, a school is an institution and as such serves a social end. Gabrielle Souchon argues that institutions reify the prejudices that can constrain the exercise of epistemic authority, and her conception of a celibate life can help us to imagine institutions that have built into them both a degree of flexibility and the mechanisms to allow the institution itself to nimbly reflect on and revise its practices. Contemporary discussions of epistemic injustice tend to focus on the ways in which individuals and institutions fail to recognize a principle of epistemic equality, similar to that articulated by Poulin, devaluing the testimony, assertions, and reasons put forward by those with less epistemic power, and consider the impact on individuals only as an effect of those injustices. Interestingly, to me, 17th century discussions start from the idea of a thinking thing with its own proper epistemic authority. And by considering the material conditions required for becoming a thinking thing, end up with a critique of social dynamics and institutions. Thank you. <laughs>